0: Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers
1: to debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn.
0: On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham,
1: and me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft,
0: working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all.
1: And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast. We have Michael Hendricks with us today, who is a fan favorite of the Strike program. For those that are not internal to Microsoft that don't know about the Strike program, this is our security awareness and training program that we have for our Microsoft employees. It's a community of over 100,000 members at Microsoft, and we leverage subject matter experts, such as Michael, to provide training on various topics within the security environment. And we are lucky to have Michael here joining us today. Michael, please give us an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Microsoft.
2: Sure. Well, thank you for such a welcome. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Michael Hendricks. I joined Microsoft seven and a half years ago. I'm originally from Belgium, of all places, and moved around the world a little bit, lived in the in the Middle East for a decade, uh, traveled around there in the region for a while, and then seven-ish years ago, I made a trip to Canada to beautiful Vancouver, BC, and then joined Microsoft here in Seattle. So, I've been around for a while, yes.
1: Awesome. I love that you've traveled a lot. So you you've picked the best place to settle. So that's perfect.
2: <laughs> uh, I agree. Yes.
1: Before we dive into your talk that you gave for Strike, just wondering like how did you develop an interest in security and computers?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a very good question. I like to say I grew up in a time when dial-up modems and privacy were still a thing. That dates me a little bit, especially the dial-up modems bit. But I realized that at a very early stage, computers are, are easy to deal with. But I'm a really bad gamer, so I wasn't really much into computer gaming. Still, whatever I tried, not really good at it. So that sort of left it to that I sort of stuck to programming. There's a really old program, and this will date me for sure now, which was part of Quick Basic or Q Basic which were, I don't know what it's called anymore, but it were two monkeys throwing bananas at each other and you just have to give the angle and the strength to to, to throw it with. And if you would open the file and it was actually in the end just a, just a text file, you could change the numbers and the monkeys would throw their, their bananas further and so on. So I realized that suddenly programming was a cool thing. You could change a few things and cheat the system. That got me into programming. So that meant for me as well, because you know programming languages are written in English, not in my native Dutch. So that meant a lot of Translation there as well, and just a lot of just experimenting with computers. And I always I have this I'm quite curious to figure out how things work. So the moment something like a computer network gets introduced, I sort of want to figure out what a network really means. Then when wireless came, th- that was a crazy thing. You could send things over over the air. And obviously since then in, in this era of AI and so on, that hasn't really slowed down. So uh, it's a really exciting space to be in. I love tinkering and breaking things and I think I found the best job that I could ever have. So yeah, I'm quite lucky.
0: Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Microsoft, the team that you're in and and the work they do? I know know some of that stuff is confidential, but for the listeners of the podcast, how should they think about
2: where you spend your time and, and focus day to day? I work in Azure security. I run a team of really smart people that do penetration tests on all the services that make up Azure. We do a lot of research on vulnerabilities, but also entire classes of vulnerabilities. One of the great things in working a company such as the vast size of, of Microsoft and working on, an, on a platform such as Azure is that we can really run things at scale. So if we find a vulnerability, we can really make a lot of those or derive a lot of variants from that as well. And do this at, at cloud scale In a very automated way. And that's really cool. There's not a lot of places where you can do that.
0: Got it. And so you you mentioned that your your team looks for vulnerabilities and and searches for vulnerabilities. Is this uh, based on sort of tips and submissions that you get from external researchers through MSRC or other channels? Or is this exclusively sort of research that you're creating and uh, working on sort of internally? So are you taking external inputs or is this all research that originates from inside the company and, and within your team?
2: Oh, actually, both. We, we work uh, very closely with the bug bounty team. We get a lot of external signals as well, which we use a lot as, as inspiration. And a lot of those are really cool bugs that researchers send us. We use that a lot for inspiration as well because obviously we know a little bit more about our systems than external people do. So we may see a pattern and and sort of turn that around a little bit into, hey, here's an area we know about where we might have a similar problem in there. So we get inspired a lot by the community. We check all the external social media and everything as well for any signals that are happening, not just on Microsoft, but also what the bug bounty community is doing. We drive a lot of inspiration from that. Some of it is sort of because we know internal things of our internal systems, we think that what if this would go wrong? And that sort of starts from internal research. So we use, we use both actually.
0: So listeners of this podcast, and this is you know, the Blue Hat podcast, this is folks that pay attention to the Blue Hat conference and what's going on in MSRC land. Some of those listeners may have actually submitted a case to MSRC that uh, landed in your team or sort of downstream from sort of variant hunting
2: or some sort of evolution of that case. Oh yeah, I actually know quite a few researchers uh, personally when they present that blue hat I at least want to attend their talk and and say hi. It's a great thing working together with them. It's quite a to me bug bounty and and again sort of over decades of of security bug bounty wasn't a thing 10 20 years ago and it's a weird change that you can see now that individuals who look for vulnerabilities tell us about it, that we embrace that and so on. And that's an amazing thing. Blue Hat is a really good outcome of that, where we can see that we actually really value these researchers as well because they do amazing things and they have an outside perspective we don't always have.
0: Any shout outs, Michael? Anyone you want to say hi to? Apart from your mom?
2: Uh, I don't know if I uh, if I can actually diffuse. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I don't know All if right. I if I can. Uh, you can yes. just say
0: hi to your mom. That's fine.
2: <laughs> hey, mom. <laughs> there we go. But yes,
1: Michael, you spoke at yeah. our most recent event, Shift Left. This yes. is a, a internal strike event for the strike community, and this event was usually we'll we'll dive into deeper what are some some things that are happening in current events in the security landscape such as log4j or something of that nature but this we took it and we dialed it to a different direction we shifted left we were looking at providing content to our community on how they can start thinking about security from the beginning what are some things that maybe that you know as they're working in their day to day and this was targeted more to folks that don't just focus on security every single day. These are those uh, developers, project managers, so on and so forth. So your talk was, as it always is, the highest rated at the strike event. We think of Michael as one of the nicest people at Microsoft. You can ask him any question. He's always there to help us and get us out of a bind when we have a security issue. Could you give us a little bit of a background on your talk, URI? You Tell us what it was about, explain the abstract, You know, just give some content around that.
2: Of course, thank you for that. The talk was a very big, sort of staying in the shift left mindset a little bit. My team has focused quite a bit on SSRF. SSRF is this server-side request forgery. It's a vulnerability where you can trick a server to make an arbitrary network call. And we've been focusing on that for for quite a while and have been creating quite some tooling for that and so on. And when I I was asked to to present that uh, at Strike, I thought it might be a great thing, uh, something we struggle with to parse a URL or a URI correctly, that's not an easy thing. And I wanted to actually tell our developers as well that we struggle with these things and these aren't easy easy problems at all. And somehow I managed to what talk, I think 45 minutes about a URL. And that was actually a lot of fun because with that we see, or actually taking a step back, server-side request forgery is a vulnerability that either becomes something we don't fix because we don't think it, it's an actual vulnerability or it becomes very critical. And that nuance is sometimes a very sensitive thing. And we, we want to find those out as much as possible. And part of Strike, what I really like about it is sort of the education factor of it. So if we can tell developers like, hey, if you're doing this, slow down a little bit because this may end up really badly. Not from, you're going to do this wrong, all the time we do it wrong a lot it is a hard problem and i got really good feedback that that people sort of uh, realized as well that we know that this is a hard problem as well and a url we type it every day in a browser it's a simple thing but it's surprisingly a, com- a complex thing so parsing that isn't easy and uh, i was lucky enough to to be able to make a make a talk out of it and it was fun it was a lot of fun
1: and your humor the added jokes just make it <laughs> So much better. Michael is a stand-up comedian on the side. Not really, but he should be.
2: <laughs> I, think, I think in a previous life, I probably was a stand-up comedian. I think now it might be more of a good mix. I get to tell jokes on a stage, but also also geek out about computer things. So those, those two things together, I like it and seems to be landing well. So I like it.
1: One quick uh, follow-up on that is, could you yeah. give a brief overview of what a URI is? And how is that different from a URL?
2: Yes, that's a question I get a lot, and a lot of people have opinions about it, so I'll just give my opinion. Uh, I don't have a lot of data backing this up. A URI is sort of the superset of a URL. A URL is the the location, uh, so it's a uniform resource location. The URI would make that an identifier, and location is sort of always an identifier. You can use ISBN numbers in there as well, which are other subsets of URIs. But I use them interchangeably, both of them. Not everybody agrees on that, but I don't know if I'm on stage, then people have to sort of follow what I uh, what I think of it. But yeah, I use them. I use them interchangeably.
0: And Michael, the title of your your session was URI, and you you actually spelled that out, you know, uh, Y-O-U-A-R-E-E-Y-E, and initially I, I I just thought you were sort of being, you know, cute and playing up to the, the millennials and the crowd, and then I realized like, oh my gosh, there's actually a second meaning here, like it's actually quite a clever pun because, and I, I think this is what you were doing, this is my assessment, yes. that a big part of URLs and that and that broader subset of URI is that we do sort of Take them for granted a little bit, that they are perhaps a little simpler and they function in a sort of a more simple fashion. Whereas the reality is that they're actually quite complex and there's a lot of sort of facets and ways that URIs and URLs and those other types do get passed depending on how they're used. Once I thought about it, I was like, oh, what you're really doing is you're challenging us to use our eyes and to think about, you know, this thing that we're using, this URI that we're putting in our code to really understand what it does, how it could work, and then therefore how it could sort of break if you're sort of not using it correctly. First of all, can I give you that praise for the double entendre
2: or whatever, the, for the pun in your session title? Thank you. It was intended to be hard to parse, and when people read it the first time, and I know as well when I submitted the title, people were like, "Like, what are you gonna talk about?" Exactly, that's that's what I wanted. Uh, that's the reaction I wanted to get. So yes, it is it is very much about slow down. There are things that can go wrong here. Uh, reach out for help to the security engineers, for example, as well. Say, "Hey, we're parsing this thing here," and I'm happy the the pun worked because it was it was it was 100 <laughs> intentional. Yes,
0: excellent. And then so is the sort of the high level uh, sort of abstract of this session or perhaps the problem statement is that maybe a lot of developers and engineers out there don't, I I don't mean to imply that there's sort of ignorance but that the complexity of how a URI works and can be used is perhaps not fully understood and perhaps that there needs to be some more education and some more understanding about which URI to use, when to use it and then how it works. So I wondered if that was sort of the problem statement you were putting forward to the audience here that we use these things all the time, they're actually a bit more complicated than you think and maybe we need to go back to some sort of first principles and, and and learn about how they work and and, and don't work?
2: 100% and even a little bit more because not everybody may create an entire URI. We might just have a little bit of a a snippet in there. So, and especially for developers in a a cloud environment and I'm a little bit biased here. Most of my audience is is quite, uh, I mean, I work for Azure security. So most of my audience is very cloud environment based anyway. Some of that would be when we create a resource in, in Azure, when you create a storage account or a key vault, that name becomes part of a URI somewhere. It's part of a host name. And the message I wanted to, to bring across as well, that even if you don't parse the URI yourself, the things you work on, on or the things you create might actually make up part of that. So you do have some sort of influence. And with you, I mean, like from an untrusted user input point of view, if we have users or or malicious users that can bypass any security control name a resource name something weird and if that ends up in an in a URI somewhere else then we might have security vulnerabilities so it's sort of connecting all those dots together pretty much saying slow down there are things that can go wrong let's go through it together and do it safely but yeah it is in the end uh, a lot of things that can go wrong and as you as you mentioned as well it is very simple, but it's equally complex. And these days, we click on links a lot faster than than 10, 20 years ago. And I even didn't talk about phishing or clicking links at all. So it is a com- complex problem, and I think it's a journey we should uh, we should tackle together, developers and security.
0: Your session utilized quite a lot of slides and you know visuals because we were you were li- you were literally pulling apart a UR a URI a URL and sort of yep. shifting left through it. Which I, I I loved that journey. Can you talk a little bit about Again, we don't have a visual here, so it's a little hard yeah. in a podcast. But, you know, the way that you ran this session is that you talked a bit about URIs up front. And then you, you, you sort of said like this very simple one, which I think you started with HTTPS, uh, yeah. Microsoft.com. And then you sort of showed what it really looks like when you sort of expand out all the parameters. And then you yeah. shifted left. You started from the far right and then you went left. Can you sort of walk us through that journey? Walk us through from the very far right and shifting left and some of the things to, to be aware of.
2: Oh yeah, totally so exactly starting all the way from the right, you would typically have some sort of hash character, some sort of pound key sign for those who still use uh, use landlines and I'm sure that's not too many anyway I'm sorry what's what,
0: what's a land line what's, what's
2: <laughs> okay, I'm good. point Thanks, taken man. thank you <laughs> Anything in a a hash character typically stays on a user agent, so a browser or so. But that also means that a lot of modern web applications, these typical spas or these single-page applications, can access that hash character and can access it from a JavaScript point of view and do a bunch of things in there. And many modern websites, the Azure portal, but even if you look at Facebook and most modern websites out there, if you have anything closely resembling to a single-page application, they use a lot of JavaScript and they typically store some sort of state or their page in that hash snippet anyway in a URL. The dangerous thing about that, that never gets to the server, but there's a bunch of JavaScript that can access that and so on. And there are uh, special bugs that can happen there, more from a cross-site scripting and and a prototype pollution point of view. And that is just one thing saying that even this thing we're not sending to the server, there are a lot of things that can go wrong with it. And that's just all the way starting on the right. Shifting left a bit more, we have the path and folders and actions in there. And that is in the end what gets executed on the server, or that's the file that we download. That half or that partially gets handled by the user agent as well. If you put any dot dot slashes in there, which we see sometimes in security research, your user agent will typically filter that out. But if you intercept these connections, then you can actually send that to the server as well and try to create some sort of unwanted situations working for a software company makes it a lot easier to look at the source code to see how a request is being handled on the on the back end and that makes it easier to look for uh, for exploits there Moving more towards the left again, because it was the shift left strike event, we end up in a host name. And obviously, I'm very focused on SSRF. And SSRF, or server-side request forgery, the main thing is you want to be able to talk to a different endpoint, so to a different host. So anything we can try to change the host name is something we would always try in, in penetration test anyway. Because using SSRFs, attackers are sometimes able to steal tokens or exfiltrate data as well, or uh, access any internal sensitive endpoints, and that becomes a little bit more dangerous in a cloud environment versus old on-prem environments. Host names can be IP addresses. We treat them as strings or names. They can have ports or not. There's this thing called basic authentication, which I actually figured out a few hours Before I was presenting at Strike, I figured out, or or I read somewhere, or someone sent it to me, actually, uh, over Teams that uh, username and password from basic auth was never in the original RFC when they created HTTP. It was something we started doing because of the FTP protocol, and it ended up there. And in Azure, we take quite a lot of dependency on it, so we we cannot switch it off anymore, ever. But that also means it suddenly we have a username and a password in a URL that becomes an HTTP header. It makes it a little bit more complex. And if you look at the format of that, that is a string with a colon and a string again, that looks a lot like a username and a password or as a host name and a port. If you put an at sign in between, it either makes it a username or it makes it a host name. So with small nuances. If you don't filter for an at sign in there, you can suddenly bypass a few things. So it's these small nuances that make or break something. And then all the way at the left, obviously, we have schemes, we have HTTP, HTTPS. And actually, because I did have a lot of slides, at 67 to be exact. I didn't feel like 67. That was that was one of the feedbacks I, I got back. But I even didn't touch schemes that much purely because of time, because there's a hundred other things that can go wrong there as well. So we barely scratched the, the surface and it's quite complex already. So it's a good problem space to have.
1: This is why we generally give Michael more time than other presenters, because he has so much understanding and knowledge to share. That is a great opportunity for the audience. I have a quick question. For researchers, would you recommend playing around with a URL, URI modifications to, you know, to look for vulnerabilities or unexpected behaviors? Like, What are some tips and tricks that you might have for folks that are wanting to dive into this a little bit deeper. You know, how can they start manipulating these things on their own to try to understand how these vulnerabilities can work?
2: One of the things I would recommend actually is just to intercept a lot of your data. So for example, there's a really cool free program out there called Burp Suite from a company called PortSwigger. It's an intercepting proxy. You can set up your browser to talk to Burp Suite and then Burp Suite will send, send it along to the server. That means that anything between your browser that your user agent may potentially modify to make sure you're not sending anything malicious, you can bypass that anyway because that all happens on your browser anyhow. And then afterwards, you sort of are, are at the next hop there. I would recommend that because that will give you a lot of information on how the protocol works. If you think, I mean, the entire internet is built on this, protocol called HTTP or hopefully HTTPS uh, because, you know, we need security. But that's a lot of different things together. There's a bunch of headers in there. There's a, We can send a, a body payload and, and so on. And we sent all of that to one URL. So that's only a small portion of web security in general. You can intercept requests, modify them, and then send them along. And then sort of see if there's anything coming back from a, as a result that you wouldn't expect. And then from there, sort of go to the next step. It's a long journey, but I would I would always recommend some sort of intercepting proxy. There are a few great ones out there. There's something from uh, OWASP from called Zap. I personally use Burp Suite a lot, but it's what I would uh, tell researchers to, to focus on. Learn how HTTP works, learn how your browser talks to a server, learn what the responses look like, and find, uh, find patterns in that and try to bypass them.
0: And it sounds like that advice is actually great, not just for researchers, but also for software developers and engineers. You, know, you can use, as you say, a, a proxy like Burp Suite to, to see what is happening, how, how the traffic is being sent backwards and forwards, how these URLs and URIs are being uh, passed and, and broken apart. And then, yeah, play around with some of those modifications to see if you can break your own app and see if you can, uh, see if you can make it do things that it's not meant to. So gr- great advice for both researchers and developers.
2: I always think that a lot of people who choose engineering as their discipline, I think you have to be curious. And hacking or security, in my opinion, is very much exploring that curiosity. If you click a button in your browser and something happens on a server, I always want to find out what happens. And I would implore anyone to, to sort of say, investigate what happens, intercept those requests, see if you can change something, because that's how you learn the inner workings of it and that's how that, that makes it easier to find to find security vulnerabilities because you expect what the server would respond back to you and based on that you can send different payloads and sort of get always a little bit further and in the end you sort of find the holy grail
0: well, the Holy Grail. Wow, that's a that's a that's a that was dramatic, that's a lofty endpoint. <laughs> but uh, but I like it. I like it. And so, given the complexity of URIs URLs, given the complexity of this topic, you did a, a valiant effort walking us through from right to left the breaking down of all the components. But this is a podcast. This is audio. Where would you send folks if they want to get a really good sort of breakdown of URIs and URLs and really understand the, the components? I mean, I always go to Wikipedia, but um, maybe that's not the best resource. Where's a great learning resource that would be accessible to anyone listening to the podcast to, to, to learn more about this space?
2: Portswigger will, will will think that this might be free advertising for them, but they have a really good uh, web security academy with some twenty something modules in there. My team did it. It's a really good explanation on security vulnerabilities, not just how they look like from an attacker point of view, but also from a source code point of view. So I would tell people like look up the Portswigger Web Security Academy, and it has some twenty ish. Different modules. There's cross-site scripting. There's SQL injection in there. There's Jot attacks. Obviously, it's uh, it's based on Burp Suite as well. But that would be a really good a good place to start with and sort of get your feet wet and see see if it's if it's something you would want to play around with.
1: I have to add ChatGPT. I use ChatGPT for everything. Even if I went to the Portsberger website and I didn't quite understand the terminology, then I would feed it into my my friend ChatGPT and say, please explain this to me in a way that I would be able to understand. So I love that there's so many tools out there for doesn't matter what level you're at, like the Michael Hendricks level or the Wendy Zanoni level. There's something out there to teach you all about this.
0: (laughs) I hope what you're adding to the end of those questions is in the form of a haiku or in the form of a rap or you know if Shakespeare had uh, you know lived in 1965 like you're not just you're not just asking for a summary you you want some sort of bizarre crazy angle on it don't you Wendy
1: I feel shame because I should have thought of that I, I I want to do that next time that we're going to have Michael speak I'm going to take your presentation when we send it out to get polished I'm going to give it back in Shakespearean language, <laughs> I want you to present like, that. One. You know,
0: as if this was a ballad written by Dolly Parton in 1983. That's
2: that's what I want to hear. <laughs> I'll do a Dolly Parton. Uh, be careful what, what you wish for. Shakespeare, I'm not 100% sure, but a Parton, sure. <laughs> yeah, that No, ChatGPT. Pt. Actually, funny you mentioned it, Wendy. Same thing here. A lot of these research has, has very specific components and a lot of jargon and so on. I use ChatGPT constantly to sort of translate it for me. I'll I'll play my foreigner card. Like English is not my my native language. Sometimes it's easier to sort of say explain this differently, and that helps uh, for me. But oh, it's here. ChatGPT is not going to go away, so we should use it as as much as uh, as it is. And it help. It's very helpful. I completely I agree.
1: I don't think we have fully tapped into the potential that is there for us right now.
2: 100%. The next 5 or 10 years of our life are going to be they're unpredictable, but they're going to be a lot of fun. Or scary, but I'm I'm going for fun.
1: <laughs> I'm going for fun too. And on that note, I'd like to ask a couple fun questions here. I know that you are a fan of making music and DJing and you're creative in that way. Tell us about that side of Michael Hendrix. <laughs>
2: So I grew up in Belgium. Belgium has a lot of techno music and so on. And I was actually lucky enough, and this will date me for sure, my mom had a store on the same street that was the founding place of a label called bonsai records and bonsai records sort of in my opinion influenced a lot of edm artists these days and i i mean i always listen to bonsai records music anyway because it sort of makes it makes me feel young again but to me that was always that every time i came back from school i would spend my wednesday afternoons and and sometimes weekends in there and i would i would buy records for those who don't know what records are they're the physical form of mp3s but i would buy records i wanted to be a dj my entire life never became a dj obviously but i liked it and still do to an extent that now i uh, i mean i i dj on the weekends on my balcony i'm way too shy to ever ever do anything else with that. but also from another point of view i since techno or edm is a relatively easy pattern i think it's a four by four beat and so on i like playing around with that i'm curious to see what 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 music was all about initially how synths work how how a frequency and these things are so got interested in that a long time ago i initially used to make music on a program called fast tracker in dos so that's that's uh, quite a long time ago never really gave it up and still do it now as a as a hobby quite a bit uh recently started posting to uh, or thinking about posting to to soundcloud again but i'm way too shy to uh to to advertise that i take samples i cut them up i i put a beat on it a little bit of a, of a melody and you know in my world i would call that music so that's my extent to to music knowledge as well but i enjoy it i think it's a little bit of a creative outlet and ironically sort of say like it gets me away from computers, but you know, I, I make it on a computer anyway, so it, it's right back in the same seat. But it is a really nice creative outlet. I know I like it. It's it, it gets me away from security and so on. So that's a guilty pleasure of mine, yes.
1: I see a pattern here though. I see that you like to figure out how things work, break it apart, piece it together. You know, you're taking sound bites, you're piecing it together. This feels like it all kind of led to where you are now with your security career, even though you didn't become the famous DJ yet, but you are kind of a famous security person at Microsoft. So there's there's a correlation. I see it.
2: I read a sentence the other day and it said something like there's simplicity beneath complexity. And I like that. And I think for a while... I've been, or or that makes it easier for me to understand things. Computers or the internet is very is very complex, but I think if you break it down in smaller pieces, and a URL is sort of a really nice bite-sized concept in on on the internet. If you sort of uh, if you sort of focus on on the small things, you can find great things. And I think I do that with music as well. I hear a great artist, analyze how the song goes. Get inspired and uh, try to replicate it, and with my own twist to it a little bit. But yes,
0: have you ever used your music as a, a way to sort of break out of a sort of a, a problem-solving funk? Like, have you ever sort of been stuck by something, maybe in your professional space, and gone to your turntables, gone to your keyboard, and and the music has allowed you to sort of think about it a little differently, or maybe open up some ideas, and 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 then find a path forward. I sort of relate to that myself, although uh, you know, in, in a different, in a different way. Uh, but yeah, I sort of use music to put my brain into a different a frequency or a different space, and a lot of the times, sort of answers or new ideas will sort of flow afterwards.
2: I tried it once. In a way, that I tried drumming once. It was really bad at it, but I, I tried it at least. Drumming to me gave me a little bit the I could switch off everything else because you really had to focus on a beat and only the beat. And wasn't really good at it, so so that didn't really go somewhere. I get that more with with things like running, for example, where you just have to focus on not running out of breath, and that makes it easier I think with Electronic music. I I think I'm too much of a, won't call it a perfectionist, but it's it's easy to see how the how the sausage is made if you're actually making it. And then and then I overemphasize that uh, the kick drum isn't too loud, and maybe I should do this. And I don't use m- uh, music as much to escape. I think, although that's not really what you were saying, but I try that with drumming. But I'm too scared to sort of hit any of of the uh, drums are a lot stronger than than turntables. That's the that's the thing as well
0: you said you were a little too shy to give us your SoundCloud link, but do you think you might have a, a snippet of something that you've worked on that we could maybe put at the end of the podcast episode?
2: I'll. Uh, there are samples in there that I don't know if I'm allowed to use. Uh,
0: I'll oh, see Oh, that old if chestnut.
1: I, All right. Yeah. Cheeky bootleg. <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't know if the, uh, the Microsoft lawyers will give us the priority time <laughs> to, to go and chase down copyright for the samples in uh, Michael's homemade techno. But yeah, um, We're sort of coming up to the end of our time here, Michael. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, a couple of final questions. One is, what can you tell us about that you are working on now or coming up next that you're excited about and that the Blue Hat audience may get to benefit from or hear from at some point in the future and also be excited about?
2: Yeah. So I mentioned SSRF, the server-side request forgery. We've been tackling that problem from, from all different angles. And we, uh, we created a lot of, lot of tooling for there. We have quite some custom DAST solutions in there, leveraging a, a lot of open source uh, with that. We're building a lot of tooling that I hope we can release to the community at some point that helps us finding finding vulnerabilities at scale. The handy thing is we have a lot of source code, we have a lot of endpoints we can test these things against, and we use it constantly to sort of tweak the knobs a little bit and making sure we don't have too much noise and not too much uh, false positives in there. So it's very server-side request forgery-minded, sort of, Think of it as automated hacking tools that would really take an take an application apart at scale at a very at a very cloud scale because we are not testing one application we test thousands of applications so we have a great test bed to see what what results look like but it also means that we have to operate at a high speed so I hope we can share those tools soon and that'll help reducing SSRF and that'll make my life a little bit easier as well so I hope we get to share that with the community.
1: Well, aside from Anticipating the, where to find you on SoundCloud when you're ready. Is there anywhere that our guests can contact you, reach out to you? Do you have any social handles, um, Twitter, Mastodon, anything that you would like to share where folks can reach out? If they have any questions about anything they've heard here. Or just in
2: general? Yes. I'm not as social as people think I am. But the easiest, I think the closest to Microsoft, I think is I am um, on Twitter and GitHub. I am Endrix, which is N-D-R-I-X, sort of a little play on, on, my, on my last name. On Hendrix, I tried guitar as well because I have to with a last name like that. Tried it for a couple of months, didn't really go anywhere. But back on social media, so typically I go with either my initials, something like an M Hendrix or an Hendrix. But yeah, (laughs) N D R I X is the easiest to find me. I'm more of a lurker on social media than than posting something though.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Blue Hat Podcast. We had a great time talking with you, Michael. Thank you for being on. Thank you for wearing a strike t-shirt. That uh, gives me a little bit of warmth in my heart there. Thank you, Michael, for being on the show. We hope to chat with you soon. We will go ahead and share this out and share your social handles with the audience. And we thank you and hope you come back and visit us again. Thanks, everyone. Of course.
2: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast.
0: If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode,
1: please email us at bluehat@microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat.
0: Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry
1: by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.